Hi, I'm Nikki Schrera, and you're listening to The Jazz Session, the original jazz interview podcast. This is episode 578 for the 8th of December 2021. Saxophonist Joel Fromm is one of the warmest people I know, and he has one of the warmest tenor saxophone sounds to boot. I first became aware of his immense musicality when hearing him on the albums of vocalist Jane Monite, and I've been smitten with his lyricism ever since. His latest release, The Bright Side, features a cordless trio with bassist Dan Loomis and drummer Ernesto Savini. The album came out on Anzac Records in June 2021, and it's a joyous showcase for Joel's creativity and his long-standing collaboration with Dan and Ernesto. Joel was kind enough to take my call from his new home in Nashville. We chatted about the album, the importance of melody, and he recounted hearing Jane for the first time, one of those I knew her back when fairy tale stories. Here's our conversation. Hi, and welcome back to The Jazz Session. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure, and it's been over 10 years since you were here. It has been a long time, yeah. I must say that it is such a treat to meet you. I think we've met in passing in the past, and I certainly am well aware of you and have admired your work for many, many years. Um, But it is really nice to get a face-to-face through the computer screen with you. And we're gonna be chatting about your new album, which is your first on Anzac Records, not your first album. Actually, it's my set, well, it's actually my second record as a leader on Anzac Records. And I think my, and I think my fourth in general, uh, because I did, I did one uh, in 2000, I think it was 2008, I did We Used to Dance, which which was actually actually my first uh, leader record on Anzac, which was the one with Kenny, which is the one with Kenny Barron and, and Victor Lewis and Rufus Reed. So that was my first one. On Anzac, so yeah, this is my second, my well, my third actually leader because I did a, I did also did one a, a tribute to Aretha Franklin called Project A, uh, which oh, was also wow. on Anzac. Yeah, so it's, yeah, they kind of like you know they, it's it's okay because they kind of get mixed up and and it's hard to know. There's there's a lot of them out there, so it's hard to know wh- which ones got put out where. So, but this yeah, this is my my third as a leader on Anzac. Okay, well, yeah. I'm glad we established that, and at least I didn't make the fob, which this is your debut album, Joel. This yeah, is so right. exciting. <laughs> hey, you know okay. what? Maybe maybe that would make more of a splash if I all, all of a sudden just splashed on the scene at age 51 out of nowhere. Wow, who is this guy? 
You know, yeah. I mean, there are other there are other artists who have done that. Well, that's and, right. I know. could be I could be the Grandma Moses of uh, of jazz saxophone. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. That's the name of Joel's upcoming autobiography, which is actually what we're here to talk about. Gra- the Grandma Moses. Yeah, saxophone. that's right. That's right. Exactly right. So this is not your first album for no, Hansen, no. and it's also not your first album in general. That's right. Which is which must be why you sound so good on it. You've had plenty of albums to you know practice on. That's right. I'm 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 getting closer to getting it right at this point. Yeah, you're nearly there. Keep going. Thank you. Another couple Anzac records, and I think you'll have cracked it. That's um, right. But it's it's called The Bright Side, and it came out in June, uh, 2021, mm-hmm. and it's a fabulous cordless album a trio album i should rather say with mm-hmm. the bassist dan loomis and the drummer ernesto servini yep. and we're going to chat about it but i first want to just touch on the fact that you are not in new york and i think of you as a stalwart of the new york jazz scene um yes. so tell us where are you coming to us from yeah i'm i'm uh i'm broadcasting uh from Nash- nashville today uh, i moved to nashville uh in july and uh, it was kind of, yeah, it was a big decision because I had been in New York City since 1989. Uh, and this is a, definitely a big shift for me. I, you know, when COVID came, um, like most musicians, I lost the majority of my work. And so I was able to survive in Brooklyn, uh, you know, through the kindness of my landlord uh, until the new year. And then I really had to make a decision because I just wasn't working at all and I just couldn't, I couldn't pay the rent. So. Um, I actually went back and stayed with my folks in Connecticut for about six months and, and had some decisions to make. And I had some friends down here in Nashville, uh, have some friends down here in Nashville that, um, you know, spoke to me about the music scene here and the fact that the uh, cost of living was going to be significantly less. And so, you know, in a way, I'm just I kind of I'm kind of taking a chance uh, by doing this. Um, and I, I also, in a way, was ready for a change of scenery in general. Um, I mean, I've been in New York for a long time, and even though I, I will always love New York, and New York, there's no jazz scene like New York City, but um, I think I was just personally ready for a change of scenery, just, um, just spiritually, I was ready for a change. So, uh, so here I am. I'm in Nashville, and, and I'm, I'm making new friends and, and playing with new musicians and seeing new people. The local jazz scene has really embraced me immediately. Um, you know, Rudy's jazz, uh, Rudy's jazz room down here is a great jazz club and they've sent me many, many dates uh, coming up. And so it's really been a, it's been a fairly smooth transition so far. So it's been, it's been a positive change. I think that's fascinating and wonderful. And I have to say, I guess selfishly, because I left New York. I mean, I was nowhere near as much of a lifer as you. I, you know, shrugged it off very early on. Part of me is ashamed to say, but the other part of me is like, you know what? I have the gray hairs. It was time. Um, <laughs> but I, I do love it when people move or leave New York because it makes sense for them and that they have this experience finding new homes and new scenes in other places and it's like okay that there is life outside of the city right yeah i think i think so and i and i think as as jazz has changed in the sense that um i mean obviously jazz education is such a huge part of what everyone does now too it's a big part of how jazz musicians make their living and even though i didn't i didn't leave for a job at a school but but what's interesting is that I think because of the internet and and because uh, it just seems like the scene is not so um, 
not so uh, uh, concentrated just in New York City anymore that you can go really anywhere around the world. And in almost any major city, you're going to find uh, a group of really, really fine musicians, um, and especially young musicians. I, it's amazing now, you know, I just, I, I was just at the Vail Jazz Festival over the past week. I was in Colorado uh, for, for five, well, actually, and then I was teaching at the University of Colorado after that in Boulder. Uh, so I spent 10 days away in Colorado. And, and what was really remarkable to me is to see the level and just the amount of great young jazz musicians who are playing at such a high level. So at this point, I feel like I can almost be anywhere as long as there's an airport, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, because a lot of my, most of my work anyway comes on the road and, and there are so many great young musicians to play with around the world now uh, that it feels like the scene is really strong. If not economically strong, it's spiritually strong for sure. There, there's just so many great musicians uh, up and coming and um, it still feels like the community is really, really strong no matter where you are in the world. So I, I feel like it was, uh, it was not that much of a shift in that way. Um, I feel like I'm still going to be, you know, sort of plugged into some essential scenes and, and uh, you know, I'm just a flight away basically anyhow. So. Anybody looking for a saxophonist sideman, you heard it here first. Joel Fromm <laughs> right. is a I'm flight available. away. Whatever <laughs> right. you heard, away. exactly. Whatever you heard him, uh, heard about him being in some remote, you know, part of the world, <laughs> only right. accessible by pigeon or mule. It's That's not right. true. I'm I'm not, I didn't move to Easter Island. So exactly. I'm, 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 yeah, so I'm, I'm still, I'm still available. Great. So I'm so glad we could do that plug, Joel. It's been lovely chatting to you. Um, <laughs> I am so glad you said that though, in all seriousness, because I had a, a similar kind of moment of appreciation for that really being the truth globally. I spoke to a musician in Scotland who mm -hmm. had, who, who was, who was in Scotland now. He'd finished university and I was like, What's the scene like in Scotland? He was like, it's great, actually. There's something happening there. Uh, I think in the past there would have been an exodus of Scottish musicians probably to London because the schools right. were there and that's changing. And yesterday I spoke to somebody in Spain who went to Berkeley and then moved back to just outside of Madrid. And he just said in the last 10 years, something's happening. This, you know, there's a whole sort of community of Spanish jazz musicians in Spain. And so yes. I do love that. And of course, Nashville you, you, it's not just, I don't actually know much about the jazz scene in Nashville per se, but of course I know a lot more or am more aware of the singer-songwriter scene and certainly the country scene. That's right. So I did want to ask if kind of studio work in that realm was of interest to you or something you were open to? Well, certainly, certainly I'm open to it. I, I think, I think like a lot of things, uh, it depends on introductions. It depends on who, you, who, you know, uh, and, and so I'm, I actually am trying to meet some of those people because I, you know, I not, not, I don't know how many people know, but I, I actually am pretty flexible stylistically as a saxophone player. So I've, I, you know, it's not that I've been recorded doing so many different things so much, uh, eclectically, but um, but I love pop music and, and, and actually, um, I don't love all country music. I kind of love the old, I kind of love old country music. I love Hank Williams and I love, you know, uh, Patsy Cline and I love the, that kind of stuff. Um, but there's a, but there's a lot of great, uh, you know, you, like you said, singer songwriters. Um, I'm a, I'm a fan of just people that write great songs and sing. And, and I always have been, uh, good at playing with singers, especially, um, so I'm hoping that I'm hoping that I can actually crack into that scene a little bit, um, because I think, I think I would be good at it. And I, and I, I, um, I'm hoping that I can actually meet some people that do something different than what I do, uh, while I'm here. So I'm, that's my fingers are crossed that I can, you know, that I can meet the right people and, and, and just get, get my foot in the door kind of. 
Well, I take my hat off to you, Joel, because moving is, to quote our mutual friend Peter Eldridge, it's not for the squeamish. It's, so it's true. <laughs> it's uh, physically, emotionally exhausting. Exhausting in ways you didn't even know you could be exhausted. You were like, why is my hand tired? You know, it's just... A complete mind beep. Uh, so hats off to you, really. And I think, you. you know, you're putting it out there. Uh, it'll happen. And that's a really nice way to segue, not into talking about your new album, but just talking a little bit about your work with vocalists, because that is actually how I was introduced to your work, is through mm -hmm. your playing with the vocalist Jane Monite, right. someone of whom I'm, I was a, I am a huge fan, and as I've gotten older, I have only more respect and admiration for her and adore her, you know, that much more. Any glean, gleaning I've had of her personality, I just think, oh, Jane, and she is, she's, she's loved by the vocalists and instrumentalists alike, and I'm sure yeah. yourself included, and I will, I will never forget the sound of your horn on her, on her recordings, I mean, notably, and I'll play some on this, but you know, on, uh, I think it was Michael Kanan's arrangement of Cheek to Cheek. Oh yeah. It, there's something iconic about it and your tone is beautiful. Uh, and you played with her live at the Rainbow Room, which is one of my favorite DVDs. Mom, oh, please don't throw it away. Um, <laughs> it's somewhere in my, my childhood room. But um, you've also worked with Betty Carter and mm -hmm. Kurt Elling and other vocalists. What is it that you enjoy about playing with singers? Well, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I love the, I love the, the interplay and kind of the dance of it. You know, there, there's, there's, uh, there's a real balance to be struck. So, you know, every vocalist that I play with is different and some, some of them sing more, some of them sing less, some of them leave, leave space, some of them are very busy. And so my, the fun of it for me is finding my space, you know, without but finding a way to augment what they do without detracting from the performance. So, you know, in Jane's case, it was really interesting because we we met early on. I, I knew her before she became famous. You know, it actually was actually her husband, who was then her boyfriend, uh, was the drummer in my trio at Augie's, which is now Smoke in, in New York City. Um, and that's Rick Maltabano. And, and she's, you know, he played, he met her at Manhattan School of Music and brought her along to Augie's one night. And, and I, I, said to him while we were playing, I said, who's the, who's the pretty girl uh, sitting, sitting back at the back, the back table. And he said, Oh, that's my girlfriend. And she sings. I said, well, would she like to, would she like to sing one? And this was about, I don't know, one 30 in the morning. And there were about five people left in the bar. And he said, yeah, he said, Hey Jane, why don't you, why don't you come up and sing a song? So she came up and she sang body and soul with no microphone. Cause there was no microphone to be had. So we played really, really quiet. And she sang Body and Soul and the five people that were left in the bar that were drinking and talking, all of a sudden, just everyone turned around and just stared to see who this was singing this song. And immediately I, I knew, for, right, like from the first bar, I said, oh, well, this person is going to, you know, this person is going to do something. And so then she did well in the Monk competition, the Thelonious Monk competition. And then she got a high powered manager, Marianne Topper, who passed away recently, um, and the rest, you know, the rest is kind of history. I mean, when we went on the road and I started working for her, um, I really had to kind of figure out how to navigate my sound within her world. And so what was really cool about it is that we developed our own language in a way. I mean, I, I kind of knew what her twists and turns were going to be. And I, I learned how to dovetail my uh, saxophone harmonically and rhythmically and find ways to really complement her um, so it's like, it's, it's like, uh, you know, who was it that used to say, uh, uh, yeah, I think Milton Berle used to say, pick your spots, you know, you got to pick your spots. 
And so I learned how to pick my spots in that band, you know, how to, how to be a real accompanist for her and how to make her sound even more rich than maybe, uh, maybe otherwise. So I, I really just tried to look at myself as another accompanist and, and, and as, as someone who would, would really um, just uh, make the performance maybe uh, greater than, than, uh, than it would have been otherwise. I got goosebumps during that story. I'm so glad I asked because I do love hearing those anecdotes of people who are like, well, I knew that person before and I just immediately was transported to smoke and, you know, sitting there. Oh, I love that. Um, yeah. But you do, it, it's, it's nice that you mention it, Joel, because I think that it's easier said than done, that mm -hmm. interplay between any horn player and a vocalist. And I was always keenly aware of not just how you and Jane blended when you were playing at the same time, but the handoff and any interjections. And it really was like a dance where it was two people who were very comfortable and adept at dancing with each other. No toes were being stood on. And I wondered, I mean, the fact that you say that you really kind of listened to her tone and then adapted your tone so that it was a, it was a complimentary match. Do you think that that has had any long-term effect on your, your tone now as you play? Oh, certainly. I mean, I, I think, I think in general, in a, in a broader musical sense, um, I, you know, not just with her and, and not just with vocalists, but I, I I can even think back to when I was in school at Manhattan School of Music and and I I had a classical saxophone teacher named Dr. Paul Cohen. And he he was a fan of mine. He liked the way I played jazz, but but he's he's not a jazz musician. He's a he's a purely classical musician. And so I remember him one day asking me, he said, Would you like to be part of my classical saxophone choir? which was like a nine or 10 piece saxophone choir coming from uh, bass saxophone, which is lower than the baritone, all the way up to sopra uh, sopranino saxophone, which is higher than soprano. And what he did was he, he uh, uh, adapted all of these old classical pieces for saxophone choir. We would play Samuel Barber, we would play um, you know, all of these really, really, just really cool classical pieces and that he adapted for, for this choir. And so when I first got in, into the saxophone choir, I stood out like a sore thumb because my, my, my jazz sound had nothing to do with what they were doing. And they kind of laughed at me. They said, they said, you can't play that way in here. You know, you have to, you have to play for the ensemble. And it was a really, really great lesson. And, and, it, and after about a semester of playing in this ensemble, I really learned how to sort of uh, melt my ego or let my ego go and, and, and really melt my sound into the context of this ensemble and, and play the way they were playing. Um, that was a huge, huge lesson. And I, and I find that it was a big lesson that I have carried forward through my jazz career, because now um, whenever I'm playing in any band, my highest level is when I really um, make myself a, a, a gear in the cog or a cog in the gear of, of the rhythm section or what are the people around me? I want to be part of what they're doing and not just uh, a postage stamp on an envelope. I don't want to be, I don't want to be something that's just like kind of stamped onto the top of it. I want to be something that's integrated into what they're doing. So I, I always feel like that's the highest level. If you can make yourself part of the conversation, but not always be talking, <laughs> Um, that's, uh, you know, to me, a great soloist does that, you know, the most interesting soloists to me are, are the ones who really listen to what's going on around them. Heaven, I'm in heaven, and my heart. 
heart beats so that I can hardly speak And I seem to find the happiness I seek When we're out together dancing cheek to cheek Together dancing cheek to cheek. Oh, I love to climb a mountain, eat to reach the highest peak. But it wouldn't throw me half as much as dancing cheek to cheek. Oh, I love to go out fishing in a river or a creek. But it wouldn't throw me half as much as dancing cheek to cheek. Dance with me, I want my arms about you. The charms about you will carry me through. I'm in heaven And my heart beats so that I can hardly speak And I seem to find the happiness I see When we're out together Dinking to cheek to cheek To cheek to cheek to cheek find yourself in a trio where there's no chordal instrument, there's no piano or guitar, and you have a double bass and a drum kit, both instruments that are vastly different texturally in terms of timbre, in terms of register from the saxophone. How do you approach that setting now? Um, like a sandbox, like a playground. I mean, it's fun for me. You know, I, I, uh, you know, what's nice about that is that there's a lot of space because there's no, the, the fact there is no chordal instrument uh, allows me to not just be the single note soloist, but it all it also allows me to play the role in certain a certain sense of the chordal accompanist, even though I even though I'm not playing more than one note at a time. So. A lot of times what I'm thinking of when I play in, the, in that situation um, is I'm thinking about the residual harmony that I'm leaving in the air. So, um, so I'll play lines sometimes almost as if I were rolling up a piano, like I, I would, if, I were, if I were playing a piano voicing, but starting from the bottom and then going to the top of the voicing, that actually might uh, indicate when I'm playing on the saxophone. So um, I'm oftentimes, um, you know, really just thinking about how I can shade the harmony uh, that hangs in the air, even though you're not hearing it all at once, you're hearing it sort of as, as a residual. So um, that's, that's one thing. And then the other part of it is, is um, I like to get into um, a rhythmic 
conversation with what's going on uh, with the drums or with the bass. Um, you know, I love Ernesto and Dan because they're very, they're very actively conversational when they play. Uh, they don't just lay there and, and just, you know, sort of serve the soloist. They, they, they really get involved. Um, and so that makes me play a certain way as well. That, that it's, it's almost like they're a little bit of a spark plug that, that, uh, that allow me to maybe, um, you know, be jolted into one direction or, or another. So, um, so the nice thing about the trio is that it really does allow a lot of space for creativity. Um, it makes me play in a way that's maybe slightly less traditional than I would uh, ordinarily. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's not, you know, I wouldn't say it's always successful, but I, but I think that it's almost like a high wire act. You kind of, you know, you, you go out on the wire and, and you, you make it happen the way you make it happen. So it's like, it's, it's always, it's, you never know exactly how it's going to end. <laughs> yeah. A different sort of thrill. Well, I think it's ended quite well in terms of the results of this album. I know that you, Dan and Ernesto have played together in various configurations before, but is this the first time that the three of you have recorded as a trio? It's the first time we recorded as a trio. Uh, certainly we've done, yeah, we've, we, we, we were uh, sort of charter members of Ernesto's quartet. Um, and we toured Canada quite a bit with that quartet. And then uh, it was augmented by Tara Davidson and William Karn, uh, the great uh, alto and alto saxophonist and, and uh, uh, trombonist from, from Canada, uh, became Turboprop, which is Ernesto's sextet. Um, so we, we're, we're, we're highly familiar with one another musically, but really the advent of the trio came because uh, we uh, had scheduled a masterclass of mine at the University of Toronto while I was up there about three or four years ago. And we did a trio, um, you know, masterclass in front of the student body. And afterwards, Ernesto and Dan came up to me. They said, man, that was fun. We should do, we got to do that more, just trio, just like that. And they, and then they said, would, would you be amenable to us just booking the band and you, you know, we'll just use your name. I said, yes, you guys go do that. <laughs> so it's nice. It's nice when you don't have to do the, do, do the booking. So that was, that was a big plus for me is that they were, they were willing to actually, you know, uh, book the tour, which is just incredible on their part. Um, so yeah, so that, that's how it all, all kind of came together. So we, yeah, to answer your question, we do have a musical history, but as a trio, it's fairly new still. Mm. And how do you think it differs? And I'm sure you can say, because you've played with so many different people and sometimes those configurations are short, sharp, shock come together. I'm sure other times it's based on history. Like I know you and Brad Meldau recorded together and you guys went to high school together. So that's right. a long familiarity, even if you're not always playing together consistently. All those relationships, how do they end up impacting the experience for you? So breaking away with Ernesto and Dan is new, but Ernesto and Dan are far from strangers to you. Right. Well, I think I think anytime you and anytime you have the opportunity to play on multiple occasions and and and, and with regularity with with any with a, 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 a group of musicians that you become familiar with and personally friendly with as well, um, that that always makes the music deeper. And and so uh, you know the fact that I had had I mean with Ernesto with Ernesto I've been playing you know with him for over a decade now, uh, Dan maybe not quite as long but close to. Um, and then, you know, even before that, if you're talking about the trio format, you know, I, I was at the bar next door, uh, La Lanterna on McDougal Street uh, for I had a trio gig there every Tuesday night for seven years. And, I, and at that time, at that time, I was playing with the, the drummer Bill Campbell and the bassist uh, Joe Martin, who was also in Jane's band. Um, so, you know, anytime that I've had those relationships where I've been able to develop them over years 
and get to know someone musically and get to know them personally, um, that always leads to uh, a kind of tacit understanding that can only be uh, earned through that time playing with one another. So, so yeah, I, 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 I'm always looking for those situations. I'm always looking to play with those people that I have that history with, because I think it kind of leads to the deepest music in a way. Mm. And now that the album's been out for a while and you've kind of had time to digest and reflect, when you hear it now, what aspects of it are you quite proud of in terms of musical achievements? Well, <laughs> I'm, 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 always, I'm always terribly hard on my own playing. I mean, I think, I think anyone knows who knows me personally knows that I, I'm, I'm never, never really satisfied with my, my, my own improvising. But what I am proud of on this record the most, I think, is, you know, I really wanted to do a record that was all original material, and I've never done it before. Um, they're not all of my songs, there's seven of them are, and then uh, two, two are by Dan and one is by Ernesto. Um, and, you know, I, I just wanted to do something almost regardless of whether I thought they were all great or whether I thought other people would like them. I really wanted to put this music out there. I wanted to have this be, you know, my concept, the things that were in my head, um, and then just put it out there and let the chips fall where they may. So, um, so in a way, I think the thing that I'm most proud of is just putting some new music in the, in the universe, just putting new songs in the universe uh, that, are, that are not just like another version of Stella by Starlight or, or All the Things You Are, which I also love doing. But, but I, I really wanted to have at least a record like this of mine where I, I really, it was more focused upon my compositional, you know, where, where I was at uh, with the pen and paper. Well, I won't tell you my favorites just in case all the tunes that I pick are the like three from Dad and Ernesto. Can, I loved this. I loved this. Oh, you can I, pick what you. No, you can pick mine. what you like. I, I can tell you. I can tell you what people tend to like. Uh, well, you, hold you on. People... Hold on. Wait, okay, wait. Okay, okay. So let me tell you what I like, and then you can tell me if I've basically okay. acted like I guess the, the GP, the general public. Okay. I love okay. thinking of Benny. Yep. Knew it. I knew it. Knew that was coming. Yep. Yep. Um. I like, I, I really like Boo Dip Dip. Yep. Yep. Um, I love your contrafact on My Shining Hour, which is Beeline. Ah, yes. Yep. Um, and I really enjoyed, I know this one is Dan's, which is Ex Friends, which is... Oh, yeah, that's... that's is that a contrafact for just Friends or just... It, it, it is, but it, it is, but it's a very, uh, it's a very um, complicated one. Okay, <laughs> and, a, that's a tricky tune. <laughs> so did I, did I um, tick all those boxes now? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Well, people, people love thinking of Benny, and I know why they do. Um, you know, it's it's funny about about thinking of Benny because I think sometimes I write my best tunes when I'm not trying too hard, um, and that and that one, um, you know. I love Benny Golson so much and I love that era of jazz so much. I was a big, you know, Art Blakey fan when I was a kid and, and, and I, a lot of my vocabulary and, and my aesthetic comes from that era of jazz. So um, when I was writing, thinking of Benny, I really was thinking of, uh, of Benny Golson. And, and I thought, well, what kind of, you know, what kind of, kind of, you know, shuffly Blakey-esque melody would he uh, write if, if he was in my head, you know? And, and that's, and that's what came out and it came out very, very quickly. And it, and it was just one of those songs that was just like, oh yeah, done in 15 minutes. Um, and so, yeah, it seems like when I don't overthink things, you know, when I, when I get out of my own way and just write the things that are, that come naturally to me, that those are the ones that people always like, I just have to learn how to get out of my own way. Cause it's, 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 it's all, all the time when I try and write too much and try and get too hip, 
that's those are the those are the ones that people are like. Oh, that's interesting, you know. <laughs> but it's never the ones that they really really like. Well, Joel, so. that concludes our therapy session. I would call there, that right. a breakthrough. That's- Joel has learned to get out of his own way. Great. Nice to see you. Toodaloo. (laughs) That's right. Checks in the mail. there a quick interruption from me to tell you how you can best support the jazz session if you so wish this podcast is made possible thanks to the enthusiasm and generosity of listeners who enjoy these interviews so much that they decide to become patreon members over at the jazz sessions patreon page yep all the cool kids have one and all the cool kids are on there supporting various artists and entities if you're interested, you can head to thejazzsession.com slash join and you'll find out more information about the two tiers of membership. You can either pay $5 a month or $10 a month. Each level gets you various perks and I do urge you, if your interest is piqued by this incredibly enthusiastic announcement, to head to thejazzsession.com slash join for more information. There are monthly bonus episodes. You get other episodes in advance of the general public, the GP. And I will also pop up on Zoom for a monthly chat if people are interested in that. And you also get track of the weeks, bonus mini episodes. There's lots of great stuff. So head to thejazzsession.com join for more information. If this is not for you, no judgment. The cool kids are also rating and reviewing podcasts and subscribing at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And they're also talking about the things that they love on social media channels. So feel free to tweet, Facebook, Instagram, or tell a neighbor about how much you love the jazz session. Now back to my conversation with the lovely Joel Fromm. I mean, you really, you have a beautiful turn of phrase. So there have been so many, um, not to cheapen them, but there have been so many lovely sound bites from what you've said thus far. But these phrases that really do kind of hit home, um, not just for musicians, but I would say anybody who's an artist, you could be a painter, you could be an author, but also just, I mean, people in general outside of the arts, but learning to get out of one's own way is a, is a big one for creating it anything. Is. Yeah, yeah I agree. And I just would like to backtrack for folks who don't know. Can you explain what a contrafact is? 
So a contrafact is, uh, well, the, the, the way I first learned about it was really through Charlie Parker. And there's all, there are all of those famous uh, bebop melodies that were based off of other standard songs. Um, you know, specifically, uh, you often hear them on I've Got Rhythm by George Gershwin. Uh, you know, jazz musicians colloquially will, will call those rhythm changes songs. Uh, and, you know, Charlie Parker and Thelonious Monk wrote things like, you know, Rhythming was was a, a, a contrafact on I've Got Rhythm and Charlie Parker wrote Moose the Mooch and uh, uh, Crazyology and many, many other things that were based uh, off of those chord changes. So, um, so yeah, there are a couple contrafacts on my record, uh, notably uh, Blow Papa Joe, which is dedicated to the late great Joe Henderson, is a new melody based off of the chord changes of his uh, jazz standard um, Inner Urge. And then, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I wrote a contrafact on uh, My Shining Hour called Beeline. And um, yeah, it's something that I like doing because having that structure there of those chord changes it gives me almost like a canvas to work with. You know, it's, it's like having those preordained um, harmonies. Uh, it, it's, it's, it gives, you know, it gives me a little bit of a roadmap and it takes a little bit of the pressure off from writing just something out of my head. That's just like, Oh, oh God, what am I going to write today? I could write anything. Oh no, I'm not going to write because I'm too overwhelmed. So the nice thing about a contrafact is it kind of gives you step one to begin with, you know, um, and that's, that's what really has always attracted me to writing, uh, contrafacts in the past. And, it, and I'm sure I will write more in the future as well. Well, I look forward to hearing them, especially if they're as good as the ones on this album, for Thank sure. You. Um, and you explained that beautifully well done. And you gave ample examples as well. I was like, <laughs> I've put, I've put Joel on the spot. It's like, you know, name me a tune. Oh, based <laughs> I know I love talking about this stuff. So, you know, I'm, 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 I'm just, uh, I'm happy as a clam telling you all, all, all my, my, uh, my, all my methods. Well, I'm glad for it. Cause I couldn't explain what a contrafact was. So I just threw that one to you. <laughs> that does lead me on you. I said you were a beautiful communicator and it leads me on to the fact that you do teach and it's often clinical. You mentioned you were just in Colorado teaching. You've taught at NYU and the university of North Texas and part of, I don't know, Monterey Jazz Festival's Next Generation program. And you've also done clinic teaching in Europe, we should we should add. What do you enjoy about teaching? Um, well, I, I like it most when I have students who really engage me. So so generally, um, you know, the, the, the trick is to kind of light the spark so that so that the students will, first of all, first, first of all, wake up and realize, oh, yeah, I do have questions to ask. So sometimes, sometimes a little bit when I start doing a clinic or a masterclass, I almost have to be a cheerleader for the music for a little while. So, so the first thing that I, that I do is I talk about my emotional experience and my, his, my history and relationship to the music um, and the reasons why I fell in love with it in the first place. So I, you know, I'll tell them the story of being, you know, uh, 15 years old and and hearing Charlie Parker on cassette tape for the first time and 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 watching his solo go by in the Charlie Parker Omni book because I had never heard his sound before. And, you know, and that was a religious experience for me. I mean, it was like being struck by lightning in a way uh, and becoming very, very obsessed uh, at that age uh, with the notion of having to know what that was and, and needing to know um, how to get there. And so um, if it, you know, I try and really impart that enthusiasm and that sort of, um, I don't know, it's got to want to call it an addiction, but an obsession for, for, for learning the language of jazz, 
because that's really what it was for me. So, so if I can, if I can sort of give them the sense of the feeling uh, of my excitement about why I think this music is great and, and sort of, it's almost like trying to light a, a burner under them just to like to, to get for them to catch fire. You know, I want them to catch fire and, and have some of the same uh, curiosity that I did. And if I can do that, if I can get them curious about why this music is great and sort of send them on their own path, it doesn't have to be my path, but, but just, you know, get them curious enough to start going down that rabbit hole of, oh, wow, who was this guy, Charlie Parker? And who is this guy, Lester Young, that he listened to? And who's this other guy, Coleman Hawkins? And, and, and who's Big Spiderbeck? And who's this guy, Louis Armstrong? You know, if I can get them to talk about that um, and start listening and, and saying, oh, wow, I really like that. I never heard anything like that. Then that's my job. That's, that's what I want to do. I want to shine a light on all of the heroes that came before me, men and women, uh, and also instrumentalists and vocalists, because I think sometimes vocalists get short shrift, you know, and I, and I, I really try and impress upon, especially my young horn players, that it's so important to listen to singers. I learned as much or more maybe from singers as I have from, from horn players in the past. So that's really my job. I, I'm, I try and be, a, you know, if you want to call it a preacher, a, a cheerleader for the history of jazz, that's, that's what I'm doing most. I, yeah, I, I appreciate everything you said, and I'm very envious of anyone who gets to learn from you um, in any way, way, shape or form. And I guess a sort of personal question, Joel, but I think of you as such an intensely melodic player. And I've asked myself whether it's because of the fact that more often than not you are playing the tenor saxophone and the tenor does have a certain sonority which lends itself i mean if i think back to you know the ben websters and the the dexter gordons and all of those players the sunny stits but how do you make sure that whatever you're playing and when you're improvising even more so that you're that you're melodic because you are so melodic Thank you. It's it, well, it's a, it's a challenge. And, and there, and there have been, you know, there, there still have been times, there still are times when I play, when I know that I'm playing too much, when I know, when I know I'm, I'm, uh, I'm overplaying or, or I, um, I'm not allowing myself to sing through the horn. And, and so it's, it's always uh, something that's on my mind. And sometimes, sometimes I think I have to take a step back when I'm playing and, and remember that the reason I'm playing the saxophone is not to impress people with the fact that I can play the saxophone, but because the saxophone is just a tool, it's a conduit for me to sing to them. And if I can remember that I'm, I'm really just singing to people that I, you know, my, my highest, my highest goal is to, is to create a new song in the moment for people. You know, so I want my I want my solos at the high, you know, at, at their highest level to be new songs that people can really, really grab onto. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not always successful, but I'm getting better. And, and I feel like I feel like when I'm really am looking inside to my heart more than in my head um, and I allow that to guide me um, and take deep breaths before I play each phrase um, that is a good indicator that I'm on the right track, but it takes, but it takes time. I mean, this is a lifetime pursuit. It's a, it's a marathon, you know, we, no, no one just, you know, if this were easy, we, we'd say we'd get to age 25. We'd like, I did it. Now I can do something else, you know? So it's, it's, uh, I, for instance, I, I remember I, I played, you know, Jimmy Heath just passed away not so long ago. And I played one, I played a gig with him about three years ago, um, at the, uh, Scranton jazz festival with his big band. 
and I was sitting in the tenor chair and he was about three feet in front of me taking solos. And, you know, I mean, Jimmy Heath is huge, huge hero for me, but, but getting to hear him at that age, he was probably, he's 89 or 90 at this point. And, and he, he, I could tell that physically he was not as strong, obviously, as he once was. So he couldn't quite project the same amount of air. He couldn't, he wasn't quite as loud as he once was, but I'll tell you, I was listening, I was sitting there listening to him play that entire evening and just astonished because what was coming out of his bell was absolute pure poetry. I mean, it was just the most poetic, um, you know, pared down, um, essential improvisation that I probably, I can't think of anyone else in my life that I've been that close to that played such beautiful music um, in such a simple and heartfelt and genuine way. And so to me, that is such a high level to, to, to aspire to. Um, and that's, that's, that's where I want to get. So, so, you know, honestly, as, as a saxophonist, I want to be a singer. That's, that's really what I want to be. I, I want, I don't want to be necessarily just considered like a great instrumentalist. I, I want to be someone who sings through, through my horn, who makes people feel something, who maybe makes someone really unlock an emotion in their heart. That, that's what I'm shooting for. That's what I want to get to. I think you achieve it. And I really hope that any instrumentalists who are listening to this who are, let's say, vocalist hesitant, the other V, not, not vaccine hesitant, but vocalist hesitant. Voc vocally challenged. Yeah, or vocally challenged, <laughs> either, uh, will hear you speaking this way and then listen to your music and have something click in terms of that connection. Because I do think you practice what you preach and um, to, to prove that you are uh, preaching the good word of jazz when you're teaching. I'll just, you know, punctuate that with preach. Anyway, um, I did also just want to make mention of an album that you recorded. I don't know why you can tell me you have such a good relationship with so many great Canadian jazz musicians. Well, they're the nicest people on earth. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's funny you should say that um, because I think of you as being so incredibly just like warm and generous and friendly and lovely. So, I mean, it's like you were Canadian in a past life. Well, I was born, I was born close to the border. I was born in Wisconsin. So that all, that almost counts. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Exactly. I, I, I agree. It does. The, the border between North America and the USA and Canada completely just blows my mind. So there we go. The proof is in the, the um, proximity to the border. That's right. But you recorded with the Canadian pianist Adrian Ferugia, and it's not totally off topic because he is also the pianist in Ernesto Servini's Turbo Prop, so you're all swimming in the same waters. Uh, but you released a really beautiful duo album, which you played soprano you. on in 2018, and it was called Blued yes. Dharma. Uh, and I'm going right. to include the title track, a snippet of it, in this interview because I just love that tune so much. Um, so why did you say yes to Adrian? What a mistake. No, I'm just kidding. Why do you enjoy playing? <laughs> why did you? Yeah, tell me oh, about that. By, by the way, he would love that joke. He, 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 I'm sure I, if, if he sees, I hope he sees this because he'll laugh. Um, I, I said yes because he's he's remarkable. I mean, he's he's a remarkable musician. Um, I, I love Adrian for so many reasons. Um, you know, we... I see eye to eye, eye to eye with him in a lot of ways. You know, we we've both we I would say we we both had similar journeys. You know, we we've had you know we're both kind of emotional guys. We've had our struggles with things, and 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 uh, um, I just we have a similar sense of humor. You know, and and I just uh, you know we both have a love of comedy. I'm, I don't know. There there's so many things about Adrian that I that I see in myself 
and 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 I think we really just relate personally as well as musically. And and then of course when I first started playing with him, with Ernesto, I mean he's just an astonishing piano player. I mean he's he's so good. Um, he's a great writer. He's so thoughtful in what he does. Um, and when you know when he asked me to uh, actually, I think it was I think I actually mentioned it. We were at a sound check somewhere, and we were warming up together. And I said, you know, we should we should play duo more. We should record duo. And he said, I'm going to hold you to that. And I and so and then he you know he got this project together, and we did it. Um, and actually, uh, here's a little backstory on that. You know, he uh, during that session. Uh, it was uh, he was it was me and and uh and sophia uh and adrian were all in the studio together and adrian was was just uh really struggling with back pain i mean he was in such terrible pain through the session and, and so for him he got through the session kind of heroically really um and it was not easy for him but uh but what what came out musically um i think was just really really lovely and i yeah i, I don't even know what else to say is, except that i i felt as privileged I'm sure as he did to be to be recording together. And so, yeah, we have a very simpatico relationship and uh, very empathetic, I think. ascertained that you're an incredibly thoughtful musician so I think it's a great match and Blue Dharma really for folks out there who are curious it's just, I would liken it to a gem of an album thank you it's just a really beautiful um a snapshot and document and the playing is beautiful and the writing is fantastic as well I'll make sure Adrian never hears this though because <laughs> you know I just feel like compliments in 2021 who needs them that's right you know, i just i worry it's for his own benefit joel i mean it also does make me think it's a little insulting that you moved to nashville and you didn't move to toronto given how many relation musical relationships well, you have with canadians you know i thought it, you know it, it was on my mind i thought about it and then it was really just the thought of going through all the immigration stuff that's sort of that sort of made me think oh man it's going to be so hard to like you know start 
you know, applying for stuff. I'm so lazy with that stuff. I mean, it's not that it couldn't happen in the future. I listen, I love Toronto and I love Canada and, and it, and it is, it's not out of the realm of possibility. I'll put it that way. It's not, it's not out of the realm of possibility that I might end up there at some well, point. Well, I think, I mean, look, so. I totally understand because I've gone through all of that paperwork, so I get it. But right. I will say you probably could have outsourced it to all the Canadian musicians that you've played with. They would have been so delighted to have you on this side of the border <laughs> that you would have been like, I'm thinking of doing it. Ernesto would have called Adrian. Adrian would have called Tara. Tara would have roped in William. Would have been like, all right, so you'll take this part of Joel's visa application. I'm going to do the financials. I'm going to do the job history. And um, you would just be bothered for, you know, the odd uh, signature on something or, you know. Right. <laughs> I'm just putting it out there. So, you know, it's like um, all the mice that sewed together Cinderella's dress. You would just have. I'll be. Yeah, exactly. I'll just I'll be I'll be like the Blanche Dubois of Canada. I'll be like, I've always been I've always relied on the kindness of strangers. Uh, Well, luckily, not strangers, but dear musical collaborators. And I so look forward to seeing, you know, what you do next and with whom. And uh, yeah, just celebrating your your work going forward and your new adventure in Nashville. I think it's just, yeah, I think it's very exciting. Thank you very much, Nikki. I appreciate that. So hopefully folks will be able to see you on the road. Are you, is, are you getting back out on tour now? Well, I just, I just did this thing in Colorado. I played the Vail Jazz Festival and then I taught at uh, University of Colorado. And I, I, most, of the, most of the next stuff is in Nashville. I'm playing... Um, at the National uh, Nashville Jazz Workshop coming up. I've got uh, quite a few dates at Rudy's Jazz Room, which is the local club here. Uh, there's more stuff coming in 2022. I've actually got a nice duo gig with Benny Green uh, coming up in Ohio. Um, that's that's uh, a little bit in the spring of 22. So there are some things. Um, it's, you know, it's slowly but surely everything, everything, since everything was shut down for so long, it's, 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 uh, just, you know, bit by bit, it's starting to build together again, but, uh, most of the stuff is local for right now. Well, I'll keep my eyes peeled for when you're back in Toronto. Oh, that's true. No, no, you're right. Actually, I, I I didn't mean to interrupt you. I am going to be back in Toronto with Ernesto, with, with Turboprop at the Rex. And I believe that starts December 8th, if I'm not mistaken. And we're going to be there for two or three nights in a row. So in, in, in early in December, I think it's December 8th through 10, some or 8th through 11, I forget. Um, but I'm sure Ernesto will, will, will put it up on the website um, exactly when we're going to be there. But yeah, so I will be, yeah, I will be traveling back to Toronto. So maybe I'll see you there. Okay, well, I'm going to try that. I'm going to try my best to air this before that, um, because I, I'm very keen for the sort of cross-fertilization of this show being for Americans and Canadians and Europeans and Brits and everyone. Uh, right. So Canadians and those in Toronto head to the Rex in December. In fact, just head head there now, camp outside. <laughs> You'll hear some right. fabulous, you know, jazz in the interim. It won't be Joel, but he's coming. So That's right. <laughs> we'd appreciate your, you know, commitment up front. The, the anticipation is the best part. Yeah, and, and it might literally kill you as winter That's approaches. Right. So bring, bring your sleeping bag. <laughs> so on that morbid note, um, I'm going to thank... Thank you, Joel, for just being here. It's been an absolute treat to chat to you and, yeah, interviewing you. It's just been dreamy. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure, Nikki. Thanks for having me.
Thank you so much to this week's guest, saxophonist Joel Fromm. You can find The Bright Side, Joel's new album out on Anzac Records, wherever you get your music. And hopefully you'll be able to hear him live. I would go to his website, joelfromm.com, and you'll be able to see his upcoming tour dates. Thank you to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com. I can't say that once, never mind two or three times fast. For the theme music, we love the Jazz Session theme music, you're able to follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at Jazz Sesh or on Instagram and Facebook at the Jazz Session. There is also a YouTube channel to which you can subscribe if you want to watch video excerpts of my conversations with this season's guests. Again, if you want to become a Patreon member, you can head to thejazzsession.com slash join for more information on how to join the community over there. Thank you for tuning in, and please do tune in again next week when I bring you a new conversation with a jazz musician about the intersection of music and life, here on The Jazz Session, the original jazz interview podcast.